Is that nice and loud? Even the deaf can hear? That's good. I, uh, as a teenager, I was in the Brethren, and uh, we had a huge plank of wood as the, as the lectern. It was marvelous. You could really spread yourself out, instead of one of these silly little things. Um, right. How are you this morning? You're fine? You're good? Okay. Um, if you want a title for today... It's the Spirit-filled church is a community of love. The Spirit-filled church is a community of love. Or we could say is the community of love. It's interesting that we've sung this morning a number of songs that feature the word love. Speakers always are gratified when... Uh, Something like that happens in the worship. And uh, if you can remember right back to almost the beginning of the year when I gave part one, this is part 56, no, it's only part three. Um, I started off with a, at least I think I did, a verse from Peter uh, uh, that says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for... Life and godliness, that's right. Everything we need for life and godliness. And I was so, so pleased when Margaret prayed this morning. She said, Holy Spirit, we can't do anything without you. And I thought, yeah, it's good. Another confirmation that the church knows what the scriptures are all about. Does anyone know who Tracy Crouch is? Oh, that's good. So someone tell me who Tracy Crouch is. Uh, for Chatham and Aylesford. Yes, okay, you've got the right, right part of Kent. Okay, does anyone know what ministerial uh, responsibilities Tracy Crouch has? <laughs> yes, in uh, 2015, she was appointed to be Minister of Sport, Minister of Civil Society, Minister of Gambling... I don't think that means she has to improve gambling, but keep a tight governmental control on it. Does anyone know what Theresa May appointed Tracy Crouch to in January of this year? <sighs> she was appointed to be the world's first minister for loneliness. The world's first. The world's first. I don't know how many people live in the UK. It's probably about <clears throat> 70 million now. Get, are getting on for that. There are at least 9 million people of all ages who are always or often lonely. And there are more young people between the age of 16 and 25 who experience that loneliness than people of my sort of age, and dare I say it, most of our ages experience loneliness. The world is full of lonely people. The UK, you could say, is full of lonely people, and, shocking though it is, the church is often full of lonely people. I won't ask you to put your hand up, but 
uh, I dare say there are lonely people in this church. I'm not talking about aloneness. We need solitude and silence and privacy to be creative, to collect ourselves, to do stuff. But we also need people around us. Let's have a look in one of the Psalms. If you could turn, please, to Psalm 68, verse 6. If you haven't got a Bible with you or on your phone, um, you'll, you'll have to take our word for it. Um, now, I'm an NIV man. I've grown up on the NIV. I do prefer the NIV. Uh, so, just for those who love the ESV, uh, I'll pray for you later. Um, we'll read it in both. Okay, now this is how uh, the NIV translates verse 5 and 6. A father to the fatherless, the defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. There's every implication there that if you are lonely, you are a prisoner of that loneliness. And God wants to lead you forth with singing. It says it slightly differently in the ESV, which we'll read in a minute. A father to the fatherless. I, I, I'm fatherless. My, my father died when I was 14. Um, and looking around, I guess mo most of us are fatherless now uh, because our parents have died. A defender of widows. Widows are those who are bereft. We th think particularly of older ladies, but you can be a young wo woman who's suddenly lo lost her husband. You can be anyone, in fact, who is bereft, someone who's experienced incredible loss, heartbreaking loss. And I'm sure there are people like that here. And God is a father and a defender to people like that, to people like us. And what God does, because he assumes, or it's implied here, that People like widows and orphans are lonely, which is more than being alone. They're lonely. He sets them in families. And the idea of setting is like that precise work that a jeweler does when he sets a precious stone in a setting that will show it to advantage. In whatever way you are lonely or alone, God has set you in this family so that you can flourish. You are in a setting that God has chosen for this season in your life to show you to advantage so that you can bring delight to others. Now let's read it in the, the ESV. 
<laughs> Hooray, I hear some of you say. Um, okay, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. Someone has implied that sounds a bit like the workhouse, but it's, it's, it's not. I don't think any of us have personal experience of the workhouse. My parents didn't, but maybe their parents, that generation, might, might have had that sort of experience. But God sets or settles. That's good, isn't it? He settles you in a home. In a home. So giving your life to Jesus is coming home, but coming into the church and becoming a committed member of it, that is coming home. He settles you in a home. He wants you to be settled in a community of love. Good so far? You like that? Is that your experience? That's what, we have to, that's what we have to ask, isn't it? We have to ask, is that our experience? Because God here is, in the scriptures, set, setting out a, an ideal that he doesn't want to be an ideal, but actually an experienced reality. That... The lonely have been set in a family. The lonely have been settled in a home. And that, notice what it says in the, uh, in the ESV next. It says, he leads the prisoners out to prosperity. That's all right, isn't it? Do you like that idea? Prospering? The uh, NIV talks about singing. And I guess you're singing because you're prospering. And the church should be somewhere where we prosper. I don't think that, that means we flourish according to financial advantage. Usually, the money's going in the other direction, isn't it? We're, we're giving. But God is no man's debtor. He will always pay back in some way more, more than we give. We can ne never out-give him. But God intends us as part of the local church, the family of God, to prosper. Prosper. You think, I, I need to go. But it's not going, is it, that causes us to prosper. It's being part of a family. Being part of a family. And... God's heart is community. God is community himself. He enjoys the company of son and spirit. And yet in his eternal purposes, in a sense, although this is probably heresy, um, that wasn't enough. He had a 100% delight from being in communion with uh, son and Spirit in the glorious Trinity, but God wanted more. He, he wanted a people of his own. He wanted 
to gather a people, which we see happen with Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the people of God take on a somewhat different shape and they become the body of Christ. And I'm not sure if, if this is biblical, but uh, it's implied in Scripture. Because Jesus is the head and his church is the body, Jesus says, love me, love my body. And throughout the Gospels, we find, uh, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus' command to love one another. And he gives us some idea of what that love is to look like. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And God's love in Christ was not mealy-mouthed. It wasn't habit. It wasn't patronizing. It wasn't begrudging. It was whole hearted love to the point as we've been thinking about and praying about in communion of laying his life down for us and someone read I'm not quite sure who it was now um, or said oh no it was John John in his prayer at the beginning of our meeting where, where it says in scripture that even though we were rebels against God, even though we hated him, even though we turned our backs on him, he insisted on loving us. That's a very high standard of love, isn't it? Usually we love those who love us. Usually we love that those who do, do so, something nice for us, send us a birthday card, say, yeah, I love you, simply because they've written it inside. Um, that's not entirely true, is it? But Jesus' love transcends all the normal human limitations and he insists on loving us no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. And that's how, <laughs> horrible horrors, uh, that's how he wants us to love one another. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter whether we're temperamentally compatible, no matter whether uh, we like the way you dress or we like the music you listen to or, or whatever, no matter whether we support a different football team to you or don't, don't like football anyway, no matter whether our knitting is as good as yours, and that's just the blokes. <laughs> we are to love one another without exception. Now, can we do that? without the Holy Spirit. We can't. We can't. We are frail, broken people. God's putting us together, but if you are perfect, perhaps you'd like to put your hand up. <laughs> we're, we're all in a process of being made more Christ-like. And so we need the Holy Spirit to help us to do the simple thing of loving one another. Going back to old people, <coughs> older people who feel lonely, often 
their testimony is they feel ignored and they feel invisible. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel ignored? Do you ever feel invisible? The opposite, of course, to being ignored is that the people you're with or the person you're talking with or who is engaging in conversation with you uh, is attentive. Attentiveness is a vital ingredient of love. Are you in conversation with someone in church after the meeting and, and, and you're chatting to them and you've stopped giving them eye contact because you're seeing a person over their shoulder and you think, I've got to see them in a few, few minutes and talk about something and your whole attention has gone off the person you're talking with or listening to. You, it's usually okay when we're doing the talking but it's much more difficult when we're doing the listening oh yes, I need to talk to him and oh, I need to talk to her and my goodness, what's going on there? Is that child really allowed to do that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> attentiveness. Attentiveness. That's one of the antidotes. Another antidote, and I have to put my hand up and say uh, I gleaned this from Gordon MacDonald, in a marvelous book of his called uh, The Resilient Life, is lingering. Lingering. Usually we're in a great deal of hurry. It was so easy when you could just go to the hall shelf and bring out the printed directory. Ah, there it is. I don't know their number, so I've either got to go searching through all the streets of Herne Bay, or I've got to phone someone else up whose number I know to find out their number, and it all takes time. And usually we say we haven't got the time. That's why scripture uh, literally, when it says things like, live a life to the glory of God, it says, walk worthy of the glory of God. Do you walk anywhere? Or some of you don't have cars, so you perhaps get the bus. But usually we're in so, so much hurry. Maureen and I have been, been reflecting on the day that will come, God forbid, <laughs> when we aren't able to drive anymore. And you've got to walk or wait for a bus. As that is the experience of many of you in this room, I expect, already. But we can just ju jump in a car and go. But one of the things I believe we all need, need to learn is the art of lingering with one another. Not thinking, oh. <clears throat> we, we, we have a daughter who's, uh, she's nearly 40 now. Actually, it's her 39th birthday late, later this week. Um, and when she was a young athlete at school, she would say, 
because we were the taxi service until she learned to drive. Um, I've got to be there. I've got to be there. I've got to be there. These are all the times. But of course, she never left enough time to actually get from A to B and from B, B to C. It was always a mad panic. I think she's learnt to linger a bit more because she's got four children and um, <laughs> I think they teach you to l l linger, although she's still, she can outwalk the rest of us. We take the tram to church in Helsinki and she will run with the pushchair because she doesn't linger. But we need to learn the art of attentiveness and the art of lingering. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah? Have you learnt those arts? Or are you in a hurry all the time? Are you in a hurry? Because God wants us, I believe, to slow down. I don't know what would have happened if the Gospels had been, been set in the age of the motor car. The Gospels are written, of course, in the age, J Jesus lived in the age where people walked everywhere. And they didn't have these things, didn't have mobile phones, didn't... Can you imagine life without a mobile phone? When I was at university, I used to go to the end of the road once a week on a Tuesday and phone Maureen up from the call box. And I only had enough money for about 10 minutes. And that was it. Nowadays, we can... Yeah, I used to write every day as well. Um, we, we can't get away. And one of the things we need to, to learn if we are feeling lonely is to cultivate the skill of enjoying aloneness. Because there's a big difference. Loneliness is something we don't want. Aloneness is something that is beneficial to each of us. But we are social creatures. God is a so social God and he has created uh, us to be those who live and flourish in community. And we've established the fact that none of this is possible without the Spirit. Now let's have a look at what our goals should be, living in com community, and then see why we need the Spirit. Our two goals in the community of the family of God are first of all the glory of God. We live and do all things to the glory of God. In other words, we live God-pleasing lives. We need the Spirit for that. God-pleasing lives. We want to please God. We want to delight the heart of God. Don't we? Is, is that our desire? We want, we want to please God. But also, we want to live in community 
uh, with the goal of doing all things that contribute to the common good, blessing one another. Paul says, don't look to your own interests alone, but to the interests of others. Now that's quite su surprising, I think, because you would expect him to say, don't look to your own interests at all, but focus on other people. But Paul is a realist, led by the Spirit, and he says, don't just think of your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Don't be so caught up with your own life and your own plans and dreams that you don't have room for other people. We need to make more room for that social integration to happen. Are we, as the church, colleagues in the same organization? Do I hear a resounding no or yes? Are we colleagues in the same company? If you agree with that, you are saying that the church is an organization or a company. It's not, is it? What did Psalm 68 say? God sets the lonely in families. He puts them in a home. Let's use the word household instead. Paul, in one of his letters, says, Do good to all men, especially those who belong to the household of faith. We belong to the household of faith. We're a household and not a company. We're a family and not an organization. The church is foremost a family of brothers and sisters. One person agrees. That's good. It's very biblical to agree <laughs> because it's truth. Um, I, I don't have sisters. I have a brother. Uh, we didn't get on too, too well for mo most of our lives. Uh, and uh, quite wisely, he moved to South Australia, so we don't see each other very often. But more, more recently, since, since our mother died and our aunt died, uh, there's an excellent rapport between the two of us. We still don't see each other very, very often. But... Uh, it used to be that when he came over to the UK or we went to Australia, uh, he would stretch out his hand to shake mine. That sounds a bit more like company, doesn't it, rather than family. I would grab his hand and pull him in and give him a hug and kiss him. I don't have sisters. I've got four daughters and how many granddaughters? Um, a few granddaughters, I can't remember how many now. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Six, six granddaughters. When I meet them, I give them, as J.B. Phillips says, greet one another with a hearty handshake. He translated that in the 1950s. And... Uh, <laughs> I think he was leading a youth group at the time and he, he didn't want any holy kissing amongst his <laughs> youth group. But Paul says, obviously in the context that he was living in, the culture, the society that was so familiar with him, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter, 
in one of his letters says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Oh, that's a bit edgy. As, as I said earlier, I grew up in the Brethren and used to shake hands at quite, quite a distance. And as naughty teenagers, we used to tr try and cripple their hands. <laughs> oh, it was pathetic. But we didn't know any different. When I meet my, my daughters and my grandchildren, whatever, well, and my sons-in-law, uh, I greet them with a kiss. A pop's kiss, I'm pop's, a pop's kiss is to wrap my arms right around them, ki kiss them on the forehead, and then on b both cheeks. Do you like that idea? Or does it horrify you? You're ahead of the queue, mate. <laughs> we are brothers and sisters, not colleagues in a firm. And that determines how we relate together. I used to be a school teacher for many years. Uh, I did not go into the staff room and kiss everybody because they were not my brothers and sisters. They were my colleagues. I might have shaken their hand from time to time, uh, as it was appropriate, uh, and at parents' evenings, uh, you'd stand up behind your table and shake the parents, even of the terrible children. Um, but you didn't kiss them. And Paul and Peter and Jesus in the Gospels are implying when he says love one another, it isn't some dry, academic, passionless non-affection. It's... Don't, don't misunderstand me. Our relationships are meant to be intimate relationships. That's got nothing to do with sex or anything like, like that. But it means we, we have relationships that are closer and closer and closer. Where we increasingly enjoy one another's company. Where we increasingly get to the place where we lay our lives down for one another. Where when, I say when rather than if, when one of us dies, we're heartbroken. That's the sort of intimacy that I believe Jesus intends for us to experience in the church. People that you can be attentive with, people that you can linger with, well not just can, but want to be attentive, want to linger, want to lay your life down, will be devastated when one of us dies. That's the sort of relationship he wants us to have. I've taken quite a number of funerals over my uh, life as a pastor and sometimes it was the parents of people in our church, people I didn't know, but there have been other 
funerals, when I took my mother's funeral, when I took my aunt's funeral, when I took Maureen's grandmother's funeral, uh, it was very emotional, very emotional. If you're familiar with um, Peter, I don't mean Peter here, although please be very familiar with him. Peter says in his second letter in verse 5, so this is 2 Peter verse 5, he is talking about the things that we should give our energy to. He says, I'm reading from the NIV, please forgive me uh, if it needs forgiving. Make every effort... I wonder what the things are that we make every effort about. Make every effort. To add to your faith goodness. I don't think it means just internal goodness that means I'm a good person, but it means practical goodness where because of the goodness of God in me, I'm getting increasingly better at doing good things for other people. And to goodness, knowledge. There are a number of things we need to know. We need to know God. We know God through Jesus. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know the spirit. We need to know ourselves. What our strengths and weaknesses, what our default failures and sins are. But we need to know one another. We need to know one another. And to knowledge, self-control. Self-control is not, oh, no, I mustn't do that. Oh, no, I can't do that. But self-control is also releasing yourself. So, oh, yeah, I can, can do that. I can, can do that. I think it was B&Q at one time. It might have been home base. Had a little buzzer thing that I think you could buy or they gave you. And a little voice came out and said, That was easy. Right. Did anyone remember that? No? Okay. No DIYers here then. And to self-control perseverance. In other words, God wants us to keep going. If we fail once, pick ourselves up, keep on again. And to perseverance godliness... Allowing the life of God to flourish more and more in our lives. And to godliness, brotherly kindness or brotherly affection. Now when the Bible, when the New Testament says brotherly, it also means ancestrally. Brotherly is an inclusive word. So we, we have to add it. Do you think, gosh... Can I do do that? No, I can't. Except, as Margaret reminded us, by the Holy Spirit. So, to godliness, we add brotherly kindness, sisterly affection. We have a real affection for one another. And, to brotherly kindness... Love. Now, I think the 
brotherly kindness, the sisterly affection, is something that you feel. It's an emotion. But the love, the agape love at the end of the list is a decision of the will. No matter who you are, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you smell fragrantly, or whether I'd like to walk away. I'm not thinking of anybody here. Please don't think that. Whatever your circumstances are, I choose to act lovingly towards you. That's the word that the Christian writers chose out of the Greek vocabulary to express this practical love which is not dependent on our feelings but something we choose to do. So, what we're talking about here is a radically new fellowship that transcends race, gender, socioeconomic status, class, education, sexual orientation, and age. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that. Again, I won't ask you to put your hands up, but we've all got prejudices where we make judgments before we know the facts. We're all prejudiced in one, one way or another. Only the Holy Spirit can help us overcome. Amen. Uh, I've got pages more, but we'll stop there because I see it's nearly three o'clock. So, um, <laughs> Do you need the Holy Spirit in your life to do some of these things? Why, why don't we just finish by, by standing up and just asking the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll only take a few mo moments with this. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit, who I believe this morning has set before us the, the goal of a, a loving, integrated community of love where we are truly brothers and sisters together. And we need the Spirit. To reach that goal. In your own way, just ask the Spirit to fill you afresh, to enable you to be the loving brother or sister that God is calling you to be.
Thank you, Father, that you set the example by loving us first. Thank you, Jesus, that you came as God's love message, love letter to the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you said, love one another as I have loved you. And then you sent the Spirit because you knew we couldn't do it without him. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of your Spirit. Just move freely among us as we drink and chat, as we meet perhaps during the week. Just move freely amongst us, Holy Spirit, and develop this fellowship of love, this koinonia, this community of love amongst us, where we are truly brothers and sisters looking out for one another, pleasing you and doing all things to build one another up in our, in our faith. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.